Today we conclude our eight-part series of messages from the Beatitudes, and we come to our last Beatitude today. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, and he began by giving a series of eight blesseds, and I want to stop and do a brief review. Scholars have come to the conclusion that this describes a progression in the Christian experience, a growing from grace to grace, faith to faith, from glory to glory. And they have observed that the first rung on the ladder, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last rung on the ladder, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have the same promise. So it doesn't matter if you've just become a Christian today, or you've been a Christian for 50 years, you are just as saved the moment that you accept Jesus as a longtime Christian. Praise God for that. So the point of the Beatitudes is just get on the ladder. If you get on the ladder, you have the assurance of salvation, and as long as you are alive, you'll be growing in grace, becoming more and more like Jesus. And wherever you may be, if you in Jesus, you are saved. Praise God for that. So this is a process. This is a journey of growing as a Christian. The Beatitudes can also be looked at in two sets of four as well. The first set of four ends with, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The second set of four, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. We realize our need, and we go from emptiness to where God fills us with His righteousness. He makes us more like Jesus throughout this process of grace and mercy. So we come to today's beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Of heaven. I want to read this quotation from John Stott. He says, It may seem strange that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution. Remember the Beatitude just before this, blessed are the peacemakers. From the work of reconciliation to the experience of a hostility. Yet, however hard we may try to make peace with some people, they refuse to live at peace with us. Not all attempts at reconciliation succeed. Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. So this is the eighth rung on the ladder. It is the highest place that we can be in our experience with Jesus of growing in grace. Now, if you're like me, I'm thinking the highest place. I didn't sign up for this. Blessed are the persecuted. And Jesus goes on expounding on this. And I think of this quotation from the book Desire of Ages, where she writes, Of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in His suffering is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. Remember Jesus pointed to John the Baptist, and He said, 
of all those born, there is none greater than John the Baptist. I want us to process that because John the Baptist does not have any book in the biblical canon. He did not see the Ten Commandments given to him made of stone on Mount Sinai. He was not translated without seeing death. There are many great prophets. But Jesus looks and points at John the Baptist and says, He is the greatest prophet. And I want you to think about the life of John. He lived his whole life for one purpose, to point to the Messiah. And he died in his 30s as a martyr. This is the greatest prophet. Of all the gifts that heaven can bestow, fellowship with Christ in his suffering is the greatest and the highest honor. Jesus talks about persecution when he said in John chapter 15, verse 20, Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about suffering. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and token of His grace. Now, this is something that we don't like to talk a lot about, persecution. It seems like today we have a consumer gospel, except Jesus, drive a nice car, live in a nice house, have 2.5 kids, and live in the suburbs, retire and have a nice 401k. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but the reality is this is a part of of following Jesus. And Paul goes on by saying, yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall, didn't say maybe, shall suffer persecution. He goes on, unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. This is the highest place, the highest honor that we can assume as a Christian to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, it says that we as Christians follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You ever think about that? Where's the Lamb going? The Lamb's going to be sacrificed. We are following the Lamb wherever He goes. Now, I want to clarify this because Jesus said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is not talking about being persecuted for being obnoxious and rude. Some people may argue we deserve that type of persecution. But this is talking about being persecuted for being like Jesus. Being persecuted for doing the right thing, being persecuted for being loving, for being honest, for being kind. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for 
righteousness' sake. And this beatitude Jesus ends with, and he wants us to understand it a little bit more, and this is what is known as the double beatitude. In other words, Jesus says, you know what, Uh, let me dwell on this a little bit more. So he repeats this beatitude and expounds on it. The other ones he hits just once, but this beatitude he enunciates and elaborates. Here it is again. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. This beatitude is repeated. It's elaborated on. And another interesting thing about this beatitude is that all of the beatitudes are in the third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this one begins in the third person as well. You can see it there. Blessed are they, that's third person, which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then he wants to expound on it a little more, so he switches to the second person. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear they, it sounds kind of removed, right? Them. (laughs) It's not me. And in the Sermon on the Mount, they're like, oh yeah, they are persecuted. But Jesus says, "Ah, ah, ah, let me bring this home to you. Blessed are you. You're like, whoa, whoa, me? Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, I want to look at this last verse on the screen because Jesus tells us what our reaction is to be like when we're persecuted. Uh, Do do you see that up there, that that last part? All right, so when you're persecuted and people say all types of things falsely about you because you're doing the right thing, Jesus says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, extremely glad, exorbitantly glad, Uh, glad to the nth degree glad. About you, but when I'm persecuted, uh, I am sullen, sulky, depressed. Uh, my reaction is not like, "Oh, wonderful! This, this is great!" I, th- this is so strange when you're reading this because it defies all natural human nature. I mean, rejoice and be exceeding glad. I mean, it could have even said, you know, be at peace or be neutral. It's going to be okay. But this is like, you're persecuted and you're like, oh, wonderful. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. And in Luke's account of the Beatitudes, specifically this one, he, he elaborates even more. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you. And reject your name as evil because the Son of Man, because of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day. And what does it say? Leap for joy. Remember those old Toyota commercials? You know, they got the Toyota car and they jump up. Leap for joy. 
because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. What a strange beatitude. Leap for joy. Be exceeding glad. Jesus elaborates on why we should rejoice. This is one reason. It's in that beatitude, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. When we are persecuted, Jesus calls us to focus on the future, to project into the promise of the reality that God has in store for us. In his book, Daniel Gilbert, who is a psychologist that is a professor at the Harvard University, uh, he wrote a best-selling book called Stumbling on Happiness. And in his book, he talks about a gentleman, gives the account of Phineas Gage, who in 1848 was working as a manager of a railroad company. He was working with dynamite, and he was working with this steel pipe, packing dynamite, and as chance would have it, he was packing that dynamite with that steel pipe, and a spark caused that dynamite to explode, and that three-and-a-half-foot metal pipe was launched into the air as a projectile, and it caught Phineas Gage right here in the cheek and exited at the top. A quick photo here. Uh, this is Phineas Gage. I'm sorry for those that are cringing right here. And the, the steel pipe went up through that portion and out the top of his head, and he lay there on the ground, much to the astonishment of the people watching Phineas Gage lay there for a little bit and then stood back up and asked someone to escort him to a doctor. And the individuals are offering him a ride, offering to carry him, and he insisted that he walk to the doctor himself. So he walks to the doctor. The doctor looks at his wound and clears the dirt away and bandages it. And the gentleman that is escorting him with the steel rod takes away the brain fragments. And in a short time, Phineas and his three-and-a-half-foot rod were back in business. Needless to say, there were some things about Phineas that were different. His character changed because it had taken away his frontal lobe. Now, since that time, there has been a lot of research about frontal lobotomies, where, where they take away the frontal lobe, and this is where conscience, reason reside. But what studies have shown is that people that have had frontal lobotomies do not have the ability to plan. They can function, they can wash dishes, they can do all these things, but when you talk to them about the future, they have lost all ability to project into the future. This is 
the frontal lobe, and they've found that one of the things that the frontal lobe does is that it gives us as human beings one of the only things that make us uniquely human different than any other animal on planet Earth, and that is the ability to project into the future. And I I quote Daniel Gilbert in his best-selling book, Stumbling on Happiness, and he says, the frontal lobe is the critical piece of cerebral machinery that allows normal, modern human adults to project themselves into the future. We do this. We project ourselves into the future, and it's like this. You know when you're invited to an event? What we do as human beings is we project ourselves into that event, and we imagine what that event will feel like. Have you ever found out that if you're asked to go to an event a year from now, you know, and you're sick, and my wife says, hey, do you want to go to this event a year from now? And I'm like, no. Because what happens is I project this awful feeling that I have, and I naturally assume I'm going to feel awful then. This is what we do. We project ourselves into the future, and Daniel Gilbert calls this thing prospection, this ability to anticipate the future, and prospection is the opposite of retrospection. Retrospection is where we look backward. Prospection is where we look forward. Prospection is the action of looking forward into the future, and they did this study where they got a group of volunteers and asked them the question after they had alerted them that all of them had won a wonderful free dinner to a French restaurant, an upscale French restaurant. They said, you've all won this, and they were all salivating, looking forward to this event, and then they asked him this question. You have three different options. You can enjoy the dinner now, you can enjoy the dinner tomorrow, or you can enjoy the dinner a week from now. And what the study showed is that the majority of people asked to delay the dinner a week. They asked to delay it a week because in delaying it a week, that whole seven days leading up to it, they could imagine and experience and just just fill their minds with this prospection and this experience of involvement. And he says that it's kind of like getting Twice, amount, twice the amount of juice out of half amount of the amount of fruit in that regard. And, and he said that sometimes this projection into the future is way better than the event itself. Have you ever found that before? You anticipate something? Remember Christmas as a child? Look forward to that event? And sometimes it's a great disappointment, Christmas Day. The anticipation was even greater. And Daniel Gilbert says this, to imagine, ah, to imagine is to experience the world as it isn't and has never been, but as it might be. Indeed, thinking about the future can be so pleasurable that sometimes we'd rather think about it than get there. Indeed, some events are more pleasurable to imagine than to experience. This is something that is uniquely human. And the Bible tells us this about heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, However, as it is written, No eye has seen, 
No ear heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Which tells us that even as much as we can project into the future as what heaven will be like, the Bible guarantees it won't be a letdown. We're not going to get there and be like, oh, it was better in my imagination than the reality. It's going to be the opposite. We're not even going to scratch the surface of that. And Jesus is calling us to project into the future reality of what He has promised, and that gives us the ability to endure even the most terrible persecution in the present. We are to have the eyes of faith to look forward to that beautiful reality, and I believe, brothers and sisters, that we don't think about heaven enough. Now, to be clear, heaven is not based on merit. Heaven is free, and that's the reason why we should rejoice. Amen? Now, when we talk about this notion of projecting into the future, we see this in the Bible. Genesis chapter 29, verse 18. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you how many years? Seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, according to biblical accounts, do you know how old Jacob was at this time? He was no spring chicken. He was 70, 70 years of age. Now, when you're 70, seven years of waiting, that's a long time for a dowry. I, he goes to Laban and says, look, seven years. Now, we would think that those seven years to Jacob would seem like waiting. And when you read his account later, when he's talking to Laban about all that he did, those were very difficult days physically speaking, but notice what the Bible says. This, these seven years, notice what the Bible says about these seven years to Jacob. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they only seem like a few, what? Like a few days. Like a few days to him because of his love for her. I believe that Jacob was so caught up in the moment that Rachel was going to be his wife. He lived in that reality that to him those seven years only seemed like days. There's another thing that many people go through and that is pregnancy. Isn't that right? Now I have no idea what I'm talking about nor will I ever know as a male. But I would imagine that the woman who is about to give birth to a child goes through the agony and the discomfort of pregnancy with this vision of holding this new life in her arms. Isn't that right? I mean, we do this projection. The woman that is pregnant is projecting to this reality when she is going to be able to hold the baby in her arms. And this reality shapes and drives and molds the woman even through the agony of labor. Projection. We do this all the time. And God is calling us, look, don't focus on the immediacy of the present. 
project yourself to the future reality and the assurance that God has something for us in the future that will simply blow our minds. I think of when I ran a marathon. Talk about agony. I don't know why people would pay $125, $150 to do this thing, and I was running the Detroit Marathon. Mile 15, people are saying, oh, only 10 point something miles to go, and I'm just like, have you lost your mind? (laughs) Then we hit 20 miles, only six more miles. I'm like, I'm about to die. I felt like just collapsing, and I'm thinking to myself, why am I doing this? This is insane. But you know what? I pictured in my mind, I know this is just, I I pictured this, even though this wasn't going to be me. I deceived myself. Oh, this is going to be me. I pictured the finish line. I pictured crossing it, and I pictured the euphoria, and although there wasn't any euphoria, I, I just pictured this in my mind. And this reality drove me to the finish line. We do this all the time. And God calls us to project. Amen? with our imagination to the promise of the future reality. And this future reality enables us to endure. Endure. This is how Jesus was able to endure the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, who for the joy, notice the language, that was set Before him, Jesus was projecting into the future. He saw you and me standing on the sea of glass, that warm embrace, that reunion on resurrection morn. That was his reality. That was where Jesus was projecting to the future. In the agony of the cross, he saw you standing there at the tree of life. And he said, I'm going to do this. Endured the cross. Jesus was looking into the future. And this is how we are to go, and notice the language here, and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us, looking unto whom? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And friends, what makes heaven heaven is who is in heaven. Jesus. And in our darkest moments, when we seem helpless, and alone. God calls us with the eyes of faith to pierce through the darkness and see the invisible reality and the promise of what God has in store for each one of us. Amen. Friends, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what burdens you bear. But Jesus says, Look at me. Keep your eyes on me, not on the faults of others or the faults of yourself, but keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and the eternal reality and the reward that he has for each one of us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for the assurance of salvation.
We thank you that it's not about how far we go, but the fact that we have begun. That at any place that we get on the ladder, we are saved. This is not an issue of salvation. It's a matter of where Jesus, as long as we are alive, makes us more like him. And Father, we pray that in those times of affliction, in those times of trial and tribulation, when it seems like the darkest moments in our lives, that you would help us to pierce through the darkness as Jesus did, to project into the future reality and the promise of the future that is assured a heaven to be with you forevermore. Father, we pray that you'd give us the eyes of faith and look forward to that great reunion when you come the second time. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.